Well, good evening. What a wonderful thing it is that we can be together this evening to worship our God, look into his word together for a while. Thank you for being here. We have some visitors with us, and we're always glad to have visitors who've come to uh, worship God and honor him with us and experience uh, the things he's asked us to do together to encourage one another in our common faith. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches us to pray. And uh, as we go through this year where we're focusing on God's church being a house of prayer, we'll probably look at uh, his instructions there uh, numerous times. But I just want to notice with you the first thing that he says to do when we pray. He says to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Why do we want to pray? Why did the disciples on one occasion come to Jesus and ask him, teach us to pray? The impulse to pray, I think, must come first from the realization that we have needs that we as humans cannot supply. And secondly, that there is someone superior to us, more powerful than we are, who can supply those needs. And if those two elements aren't there, there's really going to be no impulse to pray, right? There's going to be no need to want to pray. But when those two elements are there, the idea that we have needs and there's, we believe there's someone who can help us with those, we'll want to go to God in prayer. It was fascinating to me to see the public reaction of the events uh, Monday week ago, January 2nd, when the Buffalo Bills were playing a football game and one of their star players collapsed on the field from a sudden cardiac arrest. DeMar Hamlin's collapse drew national attention. It was on the, the news every night, not just the sporting news, but uh, even heard about it on the radio. He spent uh, some days in intensive care and uh, in Cincinnati and then was released to a hospital in Buffalo. And uh, I believe he was uh, in the stadium perhaps today, I'm not sure, at the Buffalo Bills game. So, quick recovery, everybody's happy about that. But it was interesting to me to see right then when he collapsed on that football field, football players taking a knee, not to protest the flag or the national anthem, but to go to God in prayer. Coaches going to God in prayer. Everybody in the stadium seemingly. People in a nationwide audience, millions of people affected by this. Broadcasters, both in the booth there and also uh, later on in ESPN Studios. I don't know how many prayers have been offered in ESPN Studios over the years, but there were prayers offered in ESPN Studios as a result of DeMar Hamlin's collapse. It was great, right? It was a great thing to see that people realize the two things we said you need to realize when you pray. And that is, there are needs that you have that cannot be given to you, that cannot be supplied to you by man. And secondly, there is someone who can supply those needs, who is greater than you are. I'm going to make some observations about the prayers that were offered for DeMar Hamlin a little bit later on in the lesson. But that at least was positive. Laying hold on the power of prayer begins with acknowledging the existence 
of the one who is able to grant our requests, an almighty God. Yet if we do not respect him as the almighty in our lives, if we are not his children who know him as a loving father, and if we do not live in obedience to his will, our prayers may come before him as insults rather than intercessions. In Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 9, the wise man said, One who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. If we don't listen to God, and yet we turn to him and expect him to listen to us, you see, we're we're really insulting him, aren't we? We're really disregarding him in our lives and then turning around and saying, hey, give me what I want. God sees that for exactly what it is. God sees that for exactly what it is. And we need to see it for what it is. That concerns me. It concerns me when people pray who only see God as a genie or a wishing well. Some way to get their desires without really being responsible to Him. When Jesus taught us to pray, He didn't say, just pray God. He said, pray our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. There's an awareness of who God is. There's also a relationship with Him. From Father to children. And there's a holiness that's attached to Him. A separateness from us. A purer than us. That we know we're addressing when we call upon God in prayer. And that's what I want to share with you tonight. That when we pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, we are recognizing and respecting the one to whom we pray. The one to whom we pray, first of all, is indeed our Heavenly Father. Our idea about what a father is, of course, comes from our own experiences with our own fathers. And so because our own fathers uh, have aspects to them that are similar to the God of heaven, we can learn some things about the God of heaven and his being our father by thinking about our own fathers. But also we need to realize that our fathers on earth were imperfect and had flaws. Our heavenly father does not. Our fathers on earth were not powerful and all wise. Our heavenly father is all powerful and all, all, all powerful and all wise. And so our father in heaven provides our needs as Our fathers on earth may have only better, right? In Matthew chapter 7, continuing later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. To him who knocks it will be opened. What man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? See, if God is our Father, He's going to want to give us good. I'm speaking to this room, in this room tonight to many who are fathers, and I know that you want to give your children that which is good. You're happy, in fact, to give your children that which is good and is good for them. And that's what God wants to do for us. That's what good fathers wants, want to do. Good fathers also discipline their children. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 9, we have had human fathers who corrected us. We paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? So as we come to God as Father, we're coming to God as one who supplies our needs, but also corrects us and guides us, which our fathers did. We need to understand God in this way when we approach Him 
in prayer. Our Heavenly Father is both like and unlike our earthly fathers. He is perfect, and that is the chief difference. Our Heavenly Father also knows our needs even before we ask. If you back up again into the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 31, Jesus had said, Do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? After all these things the Gentiles seek. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Our God in heaven, our Father, He knows all about us. He knows what our real needs are, what we think our needs are, and what our wants are, and what are things that we want that we really don't need. (laughs) He knows all of that, right? He knows all of it. And He knows it before we ask Him. Somebody says, well, why does He want us to ask then? It's a matter of trust. It's a matter of faith. You see, this one thing I want you to understand. It's not enough to believe there is a God. You must believe in God. God doesn't want to just know that you believe He is. You come to Him in faith. He is, and He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Hebrews 11.6 says. So prayers must be offered in faith. James 1 and verse 6. Anyone ask wisdom, let him ask. But let him ask in faith, nothing doubting, believing that God can and will give. There are a couple of instances of this I want to share with you in the Bible that especially jump out to me. First uh, Chronicles chapter 5 and verse 20. Uh, the tribes of Reuben and Manasseh were at war against the Hagrites. And the text tells us that they were helped in their battle with the Hagrites. And they were delivered, the Hagrites were, into their hand. And all who were with them. For, the reason is, they cried out to God in the battle. He heeded their prayer because they put their trust in Him. Because they put their trust in Him. We could look at many other examples, especially in wartime in Israel when prayers were made to God. And He would heed their prayers because they trusted Him and they did not trust in their own weapons and their own strength and their own might. This is one of those examples. The worthy widow of 1 Timothy chapter 5. One of the things that is said about her is that she, she trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. That worthy widow is a prayerful woman who trusts in God to take care of her. God knows our needs, but He wants us to ask Him in faith. He also, as we've already said, knows what is good for us. He gives good gifts to His children who ask, and He wants to give good things to us. He desires that. When we ask God, our Heavenly Father, for whatever the need is, whether it's an intercession for somebody else, some physical need of ours, forgiveness of sins, some spiritual concern that we have, whatever it is that we're concerned about. If He is our Father, He really wants to grant that, that, that ask. And if it is good, and if it is best for us, He surely will. Someone has said that prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. Rather, it is laying hold of His willingness. God's not reluctant to give us what we need. He wants to. He wants us to ask Him for it. 
that gives good gifts. In fact, the Bible says that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. James chapter 1 teaches. He understands us intimately and knows what is good for us better than we do. Psalm 103 in verse 13, the psalmist there says, As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. God knows who he's dealing with when he's dealing with us. We need to know who we're dealing with when we deal with him. But as a father pities his children, the word pities in that text means, as we, we think of pity as, oh, I feel so sorry for you. That's, it's more, much more than that. It's a deeper word. Um, if you go to look at some lexicon definitions of it, it has to do with the idea of loving and loving deeply and having mercy and compassion on someone, having tender affection for them. In fact, in the New International Version and the ESV, probably other versions as well, Instead of the word pity, you find the word compassion. Compassion. God has compassion on us. But the point I want to focus on really is, again, that he knows our frame. We, we think we know ourselves. We don't know ourselves better than God does. He knows our frame. He built us. He made us. He knows us inside and out. I've driven a Toyota Camry now for quite a number of years. I'm about to wear it out, I think. And um, I think I know my car pretty well. I don't know it near like the person who built it. I'm thinking right now, my car needs some transmission fluid. It's been slipping a little bit. But I don't know it like the person who built it, who designed it. That person... He would really know, right? God knows about us. He knows all about us. In Psalm 139 and verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my setting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my, my path, my lying down. And I'm acquainted with all my ways. He knows us thoroughly. We, his children, are of great value to him. Great value. Again, back in Matthew in chapter 6 and verse 26, Jesus says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? We are of more value to God than the birds of the air. Over in Matthew 10, Jesus hits on that again in verse 29. And He says, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? Not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will, but the very heads of your he hairs of your head are numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. In uh, the last three or four years, all of us have, especially the last couple of years, we, we've learned the term supply chain. Because we're not getting our groceries because there's something wrong with the supply chain, right? I don't know if I heard that term very much before the last couple of years. But all of a sudden we've had all these supply chain issues. God is in charge of the supply chain for the sparrows. Sparrows eat a lot of things. In fact, they can almost eat anything. But they eat a lot of bugs and worms. They eat a lot of beetles. 
In this world, there are 400,000 different species of beetles with trillions and trillions and trillions of beetles on the earth. I say all this again to say that God is in charge of the sparrow supply chain. He knows every one of those beetles. He's feeding the birds. Are you not of much more value than they? God's taking care of you in ways that you can't even imagine. From the air that you breathe to the blessings of food and rest and all that goes along with those things. You are of much more value than the sparrows. Our Father loves us. And so we must call upon Him as Father, which means we have to be His children. I mean, you just don't go around calling somebody Father who, you know, is not your Father. You've got to be a child of God. And somebody says, well, everybody's a child of God. Well, are they? If they are, why is it that we have to be born again or adopted into the family of God? That's the news of the Bible. God has some children that are illegitimate because they don't own Him as their father. We'll notice that in just a moment. But here, let's notice that to be part of the family of God, to be a child of God, you've got to either be born again or adopted. And those are just two metaphors for the same thing into the family of God. Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus didn't understand that. But Jesus says you have to be born of water and spirit to enter the kingdom. There might be some here tonight who think of themselves as children of God, but have never been born of water, never been baptized for the remission of their sins, never named the name of Jesus and made that commitment. You've got to go through the process, the born again process that Jesus describes in John chapter 3 to be a child of God. It's described in the metaphor of an adoption as well in Scripture. For instance, in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that they might, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So Christ came into this world as a Son of God to die for us so that we could become children of God as well. And because you are sons then, Paul writes in verse 6, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Similarly, in Romans chapter 8, Paul says this, As many of you as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Led by the Spirit, these are sons of God. You did not receive the spirit of bondage again but to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry out, Abba, Father. So because we have been adopted as sons and daughters of God, we can call upon God as Abba, Father. Abba in these verses, not a word we use a lot today particularly, but it comes uh, from the Chaldee language. It's the, their word for father. Whenever it occurs in the New Testament, uh, you see it in connection usually with the Greek word for father. So you have Abba, one word for father, and then father, another word for father in a different language. Greek-speaking Jews adopted the Chaldee word and used it almost exclusively in prayer. 
So it was not used as it was so much in the Chaldee language by Greek-speaking Jews. It was used as a special term to address God in prayer. There are some who point out the fact that Abba was, uh, among some peoples, a, a common term for their fathers, and it was. But it became uh, more of a special term for God the Father and was used that way in prayer. I might say this about the use of that term in Bible times. Abba was not a term that servants were allowed to use for the master of the house. Servants in the house were not allowed to call the master of the house Abba. They called him Lord. He was not their father. Only the sons and daughters could call the master of the house Abba. We are sons and daughters. We have this close affinity with God, a relationship with Him in a family. But it is a respectful one. It would not do, for instance, for us to call on the God of Heaven as Daddy or something like that. It's just a little too informal. It's a little too less respectful, you might say. That's not how Abba was used. It was used in a respectful sense. So that gets me to this point back in our original text in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says that we're to pray, Hallowed be thy name, or your name. We'll look at that more in a minute. But the idea of to hallow is to venerate, to treat something or someone as holy with a high degree of respect, the degree of respect that they deserve. So to call upon God as Abba, Father, is is doing that. True children of God then, as we mentioned earlier, accept the chastening and discipline of their Heavenly Father. God uh, is someone who chastens us in a number of ways. He rebukes us in His Word. He might allow bad things to happen to us to wake us up sometimes. Uh, we get disciplined in all sorts of ways to guide us in the way that's right. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 7, if you endure chastening, then God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have been made, made partakers, you are illegitimate and not sons. So if you won't follow God's direction, His chastening, His rebuke, His correction in your life. There are people sometimes, they're just going the wrong direction and you think, well, maybe if something bad happens in their life, uh, they'll wake up. And something bad does happen. And you say, okay, here it is. No, that's not here it is. (laughs) They just keep on going. They refuse to turn to God even when bad things happen. They don't receive the chastening. Or you take God's Word to them and you say, here's God's correction. Here, You've got this mess in your life and you could straighten it out if you just listen to what God had to say. Here's His correction for you. Here's, here's to get you on the right path. And they don't pay attention to that. They reject the chastening of the Word. They reject their sonship when they do that. They're no longer sons. They're illegitimate. So I say that to say, We need to be true children of God to effectively pray to Him. And true children of God receive His discipline in life and through His Word. It's an important point that makes prayer effective. The one to whom we pray, Jesus wants us to know, resides in heaven. 
He is one who possesses all power, immortality, wisdom, and knowledge that's beyond all reckoning. He is, he is the Almighty. The psalmist in Psalm 73 and verse 25 asked rhetorically, Whom have I in heaven but you? There upon earth I desire besides you. God is the one we have in heaven. And his divine attributes and, rich, and the riches of heaven are at his disposal to bless his children with. In Malachi chapter 3, God promised the children of Israel that they'd straighten up and respect him as they should. He would open the windows of heaven if they bring the tithes and the offerings in and treat him as the, the, the holy, almighty God that he is. He says, test me and see if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be enough room to receive it. I don't know uh, how much uh, there is in heaven in the way of riches. I'm pretty sure it's a whole lot more than there is here on earth. But when God talks about opening the windows of heaven and pouring out blessings upon us, so much so that we wouldn't be able to receive it, if we will trust Him, if we'll do what's right, if we'll respect Him, and that's what He has in mind, especially in that text. Imagine the riches of heaven. What could be poured out of those windows? Philippians 4 and verse 19. Paul assures the Philippian church, My God shall supply all your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. No, no lack of resources for God. You know, sometimes here on earth, Parents would like to do things for their children, but they don't have the resources. There are certainly times like that with our children. Just didn't have the money to do it with. But God's resources are limitless. This is our God. This is the one to whom we pray. And His name is to be hallowed. Let's now think about that for a while. Did you ever say something to your father in a, in a tone that was disrespectful? Or maybe a little bit too familiar? I did maybe once. <laughs> that would have been the first and last time. But you know how that would have gone, right? You better think about who you're talking to, boy. Right? That's about how that would go. And if you didn't think about who you were talking to and straighten up the way you were talking, uh, well, consequences would be unpleasant. Who are we talking to when we're talking to God? What does it mean to hallow His name? Well, as we've already said, hallow comes from the same root word as the word holy. And it's this idea of uh, a purity that is apart from us. Separation that is beyond us. God in Scripture is the perfection of holiness. In fact, He's called holy, holy, holy repeatedly by those who observe Him before His throne. His name is exalted and awesome. You know, your name is your identity, isn't it? It represents all, you, all that you are. God's name is exalted because of His holiness. Psalm 8 and verse 1, Lord, our, our Lord, how excellent is Your name in all the earth 
who have set your glory above the heavens. Nehemiah chapter 9, when the Levites in Nehemiah's day addressed God in prayer, in a prayer of repentance and devotion, they told the people, they said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. God's name is to be exalted. Restrictions, in fact, are placed on the very use of God's name, aren't they? In the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20 and verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord your God will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So here then is something I want us to think about pretty seriously. God's name is taken in vain constantly in our culture. The name of God is thrown out in association with cuss words, uh, in association with vulgar language, as an expression of surprise or contempt. None of those is a proper use of God's name. All of those are insulting to His name. The phrase, common phrase, OMG, which you see all of the time, is an insult to the name of God in most of its usages. How can we? How can we use God's name in that way? And turn around and say to Him, My Father in Heaven, hallowed be Your name. When we have done Everything but hallow His name in the way we use it. We're living in a society, getting back to Damar Hamlin, society that barely recognizes God, but when something terrible happens, and something beyond, clearly beyond, grieves us, we'll call upon God. And in the next sentence, as I saw this last week, take his name in vain and disrespect his name. The Bible says in Psalm 73 and verse 25, your enemies take your name in vain. Talking to God, your enemies take your name in vain. Let us bless the Lord's name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Psalm 103 and verse 1. What Jesus wants us to do is to pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It doesn't mean you have to say those exact words, obviously. The model prayer is a blueprint for us, isn't it? Jesus is showing us how to go about it. But we go about it with recognition of who God is. He must be our Father if we're going to call on Him. And we must respect His name, His holiness, and who He is. So here's what we mean, and I think what Jesus meant when He said to pray like this. God is in heaven. He is your Father. Do you respect Him enough to demonstrate it in your life? And that brings it to the question that we'll close with. Do you respect God enough to demonstrate it in your life? I can tell you this, 
sometime in your life, probably many times in your life, you're going to have a Damar Hamlin moment. When a loved one is seriously ill at death's door, has had a cardiac arrest, been in a car accident, it's going to happen. When you're faced with a cancer diagnosis, it's going to happen. When your house burns down, it's going to happen. And the tornado's coming, like they did in south of here this last week. Saw an interview with a woman today that was hit by a tornado. Her house was hit by a tornado in Georgia. They interviewed her. The whole family was in the closet. A bunch of kids, I think five kids, and the husband and wife in the closet area. What were you doing? Praying. Praying. That moment's going to come. Maybe many times in your life. You're going to want to be right with God. Are you right with God tonight? Would you obey the gospel? Would you be born again, adopted as a child of God? 